Empower Radio presents Positive Now with Lisa Jesswine. Connect with interesting, inspiring, creative, and spiritually uplifting people who know the value of being positive now. Here's Lisa Jesswine. And boy, oh boy, was that never more true than the show that we're going to do today. I'll let you know that this show almost didn't happen today for a couple of reasons. Because the guest that we have in studio today might not have been around to do this show. And the second reason is because uh, dealing with what this guest has dealt with, coming forth and telling a story, is not always possible. So that's the other reason it might not have happened. But she is uh, brave enough and has agreed to sit with us today as we talk about domestic violence. Now, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking to the communications director of the National Network to End Domestic Violence out of Washington, D.C. So he can take your questions. My guest, Olivia, today can take your questions as well. So mark down this number, 248-809-3474, for any questions that you might have. So thank you, Olivia for being brave enough. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Good, because I know this was a difficult decision for you to go ahead and tell your story. I think any time a survivor moves forward and out of the darkness and into the light of domestic violence, it's a tough step. It's a dark place, isn't it? It's extremely dark. Did you ever, I know this is, people are like thinking, what a stupid question, but did you ever think this could happen to you? Absolutely not. And I don't think anyone I know ever would have thought I would have been in this position. It is something so deceitful and sneaky that really creeps into your life unbeknownst to you at the time until you're able to separate yourself and create that distinction and go, oh, my gosh, what's what's really going on here? This isn't right. Mm -hmm. And did you, uh, let's think back to when you first met this person, and were there any pre-indicators, any behaviors that sort of cropped up? Absolutely not. The most charming, loving individual you would ever meet. Uh, Helpful, courteous, and I had known him for 20 years. 20 years before we got married, and never once was an indication that this demonic side of him existed by the way we are um, changing her name it's been changed to protect uh, Olivia as a survivor and to make this as anonymous as possible because that's another reason people don't like to come forward because there are repercussions sometimes when people came forward now you'd stated that um, you knew him for 20 years why did you know him for 20 years he was someone that I had been associated with through work Oh, it's their work. And you comfortable with answering um, what kind of work did you do? I worked in the law enforcement environment. Okay. So you, and, and you are a master edu- educated, right? You have a master's? I have a master's degree in public administration and organizational psychology. Okay. So here's someone with a master's degree and you worked in law enforcement. And so you there saw people who were batterers come into this environment, correct? Absolutely. I dealt with both batterers and with victims of domestic violence. Okay, so this is like a little insight into those that batter. To the person who is the batterer, what kind of mindset's going on? What did you glean from them? It's about power and control with the batterer. It's not about anger or learning how to manage anger. It's about needing to be in control, have that power over someone, and using any technique or tactic available to them to obtain control over a victim or an intimate partner. Right, because sometimes, I mean, there there is emotional abuse and psychological abuse and physical abuse and financial abuse. All, all Are they all interrelated? And sexual abuse. They're yes. all interrelated all interrelated and when a batterer finds out that a certain set of techniques is not working say in the uh, physical arena okay they'll switch their tactics to do a- an emotional control and 
combine it with financial control. You know, all of a sudden they're the breadwinner or um, they're accusing you left and right of having affairs, which it will surprise some people. But even that, if your intimate partner is continually accusing you of having affairs, that's a form of sexual abuse in and of itself. It doesn't have to just be a rape violation um, or a sexual violation. It, it's all about how do I control that person? What tactic do I use to get them to think, act, and do what I want them to do? Okay. And, you know, I would define you as a very, you know, independent, strong woman. So here you are in this relationship. What was the first indicator that something was wrong? Uh, shortly after we were married, it was discovered that he had lied to me in order to get me to marry him. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty big. It was pretty big. And, you know, I think the first indicator is that really, if you're looking at marriage counseling three or four weeks into a marriage, that, you know, should be a big red flag. Mm -hmm. um, being that the person that I am raised with the values and beliefs that I had, um, and again, part of the charm, and then what's called the honeymoon phase after an incident, I truly believed for a long time, and, and I look back now and I think, okay, it was probably just denial, but I truly believed him when he said, I want to be a better person. I'm, I'm going to get this help. So that, so you did confront him. It started with a lie. That was your first little red flag. Correct. You confronted him about the lie. Correct. And then he sort of admitted something was wrong and sort of said, I, I want to try and get help for this. Correct. Okay. And it, it just kept escalating. Um, and again, I think, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, being a very spiritual person, I believe that things happen for a reason. And I believe I am here in this position for a reason. And I believe part of it is to bring light, not only just to domestic violence. Um, I was subjected to kind of what's considered like a subset to domestic violence where my batter is a police officer. Mm. So I... Someone of authority and power. I am a survivor of what's called officer-involved domestic violence. And that is wow. very different than what we would call civilian mm. domestic violence in that a peace officer or law enforcement officer is much more sophisticated in their tactics and their way to abuse people. Uh, they are trained specifically on how to cause harm but not leave a mark. When an incident of violence occurs, who am I as a spouse of a police officer expected to call? Law enforcement? Mm -hmm. He's going to twist that around so that he's the victim and I'm the perpetrator. The system is stacked against wives, spouses, significant others of of law enforcement officers because their connection not and not just their knowledge, but their connections within the system, that, that brotherhood of blue, continues all the way through the court process. Mm -hmm. So all of this work that's been done in domestic violence in the areas of domestic violence and sexual assault has been tremendous. But then you throw in this added component of a person who already is in a position of power into you throw it into that mix mm -hmm. and it sets the victim back even more there's nowhere to turn when my incident happened there was nowhere to turn my local domestic violence shelter actually turned me away because he was a police officer because by allowing me to go there i put everyone at risk because he has access to know where the safe houses are i never even thought of that so whereas, and you called it, okay, there's officer-involved domestic violence, and then what's the other called? Like civilian. Civilian mm -hmm. domestic violence. And when I say officer-involved domestic violence, it could even be if someone is in a position, say, with children, child, children protective services. So you someone, know. is it of authority or power within the system? Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay, so it started out with a lie. Let's go back to this. Mm-hmm. In, if you're comfortable telling us what is the next phase where you thought, wow, this is escalating now. 
that was when the emotional abuse and isolation started. Um, what do you mean by isolation? I, I remember one day, it, once a year, I would meet a, a friend of my mother's. She passed away um, for lunch. We would meet for her birthday. And it was a Sunday afternoon. And I got home and, you know, you know how you can kind of tell that something's not right with someone. You know, mm-hmm. you seem upset. Something, you know, that we should talk about. And, you know, he kept saying no. And Tuesday night, out of the blue, I get home from, I went to work, I went and ran some errands, and I get home and it just escalated. And what it was, was at that point, I had no clue other than this man was ready to do battle. And in the tirade, it was, you must be having an affair. You had lunch on Sunday with someone. I mean, I even had a picture of this woman and I at a restaurant. You know, I'm like not having an so affair. So a lot of accusations. Unfounded accusations. You must not love me because you went and did errands after work. So that must mean you don't want to be home with like me. Like paranoia almost. Extremely. And I could tell it was escalating. And I said, you know what? And and all my techniques of crisis intervention and and crisis de-escalation, none of them were working, which was like, okay, other red flag. Um, I said, you know what? I'm going to go spend the night at a friend's house. (laughs) This is not a safe environment for either one of us. You're escalated. Um, He cornered me in the bathroom. He grabbed me. He violently shook me. I will not repeat things that was said, but but basically threatened, you know, do mm-hmm. you want me to cause you physical harm? And I just went limp. I mean, the, the quickest way at that point to de-escalate was just stop. And Just sort of become like a rag doll? Is that it, what you did? Just, like, uh. It just became a rag doll, and as calm as I could, I looked him square in the eyes, and I said, if that's what you feel you need to do, then do it. And that de-escalated him long enough, only long enough, for me to get out of the house into safety. People had said, why didn't you call 911? I'm cornered in a second-story bathroom. I'm not going to stop on the way out to call 911, which, Mm -hmm. again, I'm going to call the police on a police officer? Right. Okay, so... And, and we are going to talk to the National Network to End Domestic Violence in the second half of the show today to get their expertise about what a woman is to do if they're trapped in that moment. Exactly. But if there are women listening right now who have had instances like that of being shook, maybe even being slapped, beaten, raped, whatever it is, what would be your advice in that moment right before violence occurs? Trust your intuitive instinct because you know that intimate partner better than anybody else. It's going to be, and I I attribute what kept me safe that night was my intuition to just de-escalate, just stop. That might not be the situation for the next person. They have to judge that for themselves. But clearly, if you're in an abusive relationship, develop a safety plan. Keep cash stashed. Keep an extra set of keys. Um, keep a phone that doesn't have a GPS system in it, especially if your abuser is in a position of authority where they can tap into OnStar or, you know, law enforcement tracking devices where they can find you. I mean, it's that that safety planning is key and critical, and you want as few people to know about that as possible. Mm-hmm. Because the most, one of the most dangerous times for a victim to leave is when she leaves. That is the most critical time where that abuser will escalate. That is the most dangerous time frame. Once they realize they no longer have control. Now, did you share that any of this was going on with any other family members or friends? Because I'll tell you, I didn't know your life was like this. And I consider myself a good friend of yours. Um, maybe it's because you know what I would have done to him. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> but is there reasoning behind that? Or, or is there sort of like a shrinking of the person who's being abused? I think 
when I think back to where I was and at that stage was considering myself a victim, I now consider myself a survivor. Um, there's a huge transition, and I think there's a big myth that people think that, okay, she's being abused. She must just have really low self-esteem. She must not think very highly about herself. And that is, if I could myth-bust that, if mm-hmm. that was the biggest like ghost-busting myth I could have, it, it would be that. When the survivor starts standing in her own self-esteem, in her own power, that escalates the abuser even more because the abuser is learning, "Uh uh-oh, this technique isn't going to work. And with someone who is so focused on power and control, you never know what's going to escalate them. I mean, it could be something as simple as why is the fork on the right side of the plate instead of the left side of the plate? Or it could be, you know, a huge financial decision being made. Mm -hmm. Um, When that victim, survivor, whoever she is, or he, I mean, it it does go both ways, stands in their power, their risk escalates even more. Mm -hmm. So it's not that victims or survivors don't have self-esteem. They have learned that it is not beneficial to stand up in it. And how do they move forward then? Uh, Usually a swift kick in the butt. And I say that figuratively, not, not literally. Uh, it's a hard place to move forward to or move forward from. Mm, yeah. I was fortunate in that my abuser's power and control, and again, he, this is what he, this particular one, and everyone's different, but this one lives for control. I came home from work one day to a note <laughs> that said, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, you probably figured out I was gone by now. I know you gave me everything you had. I took it. I'm out of here. Now, some people might say that's the answer to your prayers. And, well, and on one level it was. But it created a whole new path to travel down because there was still that uncertainty. And there's still, okay, now the separation has occurred, regardless of of how it happened. There's still that elevated risk. Um, And from that point forward, what I have been dealing with, my truth right now regarding this situation is that it's all lies. His story changes depending on who he's talking to, um, you know, and has flipped it so that he is the victim. Mm. I'm such a nice guy. I can't believe she would say these things about me. Mm. Well, and... Since you worked within the same industry, correct, has it been difficult because you left you left that industry? I did somewhat forced out. I left because the incident became known. Okay. I don't know how it became known. I was never asked about it. So okay. his words were taken as truth um. It was told to me that uh, my manager was too uncomfortable to talk to me about it. Wow. <laughs> and if I could if I could reflect back a oh. question to the manager, mm, it mm, would mm, be, mm. Um, how uncomfortable do you think I felt being yeah. cornered in a second-story bathroom with my life being threatened? You so think that was comfortable? <laughs> just to catch everybody up here, because I know, um, have you been able to be employed in the industry in which you have most of your experience in? No. I have hit roadblocks left and right. Mm. Gee, wonder why. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Yep. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. That's one of those rhetorical it questions. Is. Yes, wonder why. Um so you are on the beginning of a new path moving forward. I am. Uh, yes, I am. What are you studying right now? What? what uh... I actually just completed uh, the domestic violence advocacy training program through a local domestic violence shelter. Um, I, we are divorced now, so I am on a new path. Um, the court process was a continuation and extension of the abuse with how things played out. Um, I being part-time employed, 
him being full-time employed, making a significantly much larger income than I, um, and, and I always love this word, um, the court awarded me like I won the lotto, <laughs> 100% of the joint marital debt. Hey! <laughs> it was a big prize there. And... Um, so the future's a little sketchy for me at this point. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking now at this age. Uh, where do I go from here? Obviously, some priorities are going to be how do I afford basic needs such as food, clothing, shelter. But the one thing, and it's actually more than one thing, that this whole process cannot take from me, did not take from me, and in fact is probably made stronger, um, is my integrity, mm. the fact that I am standing in the light of the truth, and it has not silenced my voice. It's made it stronger. And if I can help one person, I would love to help more than one. Right. But even if this message can help one person, then this has been worth it. And it will be worth it. And I know that advocating for victims is part of my path. Where that takes me, I don't know, mm-hmm. but that is that is one part of my path. Now, as as we get ready, when we will go into commercials here, and after that, we're going to talk to uh, Brian Nami. And Brian, you can correct me on your last name when we get to you. The National Network to End Domestic Violence. We're going to ask him also about what happens when there are children involved, because you don't have any children. I was very fortunate. Very yes. fortunate not to do that, because I know the mindset of women that are stuck in domestic violence who have children, sometimes it's like, where am I going to take these kids? How am I going to support, exactly. you know, getting them away from this violence? And then the effect that that has on the kids as well, going through all of this. Um, so we're going to, we're going to get to that in just a little bit, but Olivia, you are just, I am so completely amazed with you and all the years that I've known you to find out about your strength that came from all of these things is just amazing. And, and the fact that you're sharing it with everybody else, because I could sit here all day long and talk about it. I haven't experienced it. You have. So you can say, I know how you feel. I know what's running through your head right now. So before we go to break, what's what's running through someone's head right now and what can you tell them to help make it better right at this moment? They're probably saying to themselves, help. What's my first step? How do I do this? And there are hotlines out there and there are people out there and it's about reaching out. There is a hand that will be there to grab yours to help you through the process. See, and I know right now, if you're listening, you're stuck in that fear mode. Absolutely. Because we can get in that, and that just paralyzes you. It does. I was paralyzed for, you know, probably 18 months. I may just now be coming out of this paralysis phase where, you know, the light's going ding, 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 do something. I know for me that the damage that I have sustained throughout this process, it's done. My interest in bringing this to light is, again, because I have the voice, the willingness, and the guts to do it. It needs to be brought to light. Um, and it is for the benefit of others, not for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really great that you're you know staying on to talk with Brian because he's out in Washington, D.C. And the next step or, or of you moving forward might be, how do we affect change in Washington? Or... In the state. I mean, whatever. Something needs to be done. These are agencies that have a tremendous amount of resources available that don't use them. There's, in this case, two employees that were clearly in trouble that needed help, and nothing was done. Just sort of put their head in the sand a little bit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, so hang in there. Okay, stay with us. We're going to talk to the National Network to End Domestic Violence next. Have you ever lost a cat? 
And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors... Ranger Station, Ranger speaking. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'd like to report a bear sighting. Location. In the forest near the side of the road. No need for alarm, sir. The forest is where bears live. But this was no ordinary bear. No ordinary bear? At one second, I'm having a smoke taken in the view. Next thing I know, I am face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Let me guess, Smokey had a tip for you. He did. He must have seen me toss my cigarette on the ground. He told me never to do that because it only takes one spark to start a wild. Fire. He's a smart bear. Did you know that 9 out of 10 wildfires are caused by humans? That means 9 out of 10 wildfires can be prevented. That's what Smokey said. I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous, and you're not. Good point. Get your Smokey on. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference, because 9 out of 10 wildfires are caused by humans. Brought to you by Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. The odds of a young girl being discovered by an industry insider while singing to herself pumping gas? One in 300 million. The odds of the daughter of a clergyman from Severn, Maryland spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of selling over 40 million records? One in 800,000. And the odds of this musician and performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the... You're listening to Empower Radio. EmpowerRadio.com. Now, back to Positive Now with Lisa Justwine. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Positive Now. We're talking today about domestic violence and helping people move forward in a positive manner. Uh, first half of the show, we talked to my friend Olivia um, about her situation dealing with domestic violence. And we have Brian. Is it Nami? Namey. Namey. Thank you, Brian. Brian Namey from the National Network to End Domestic Violence on the line. And you are the communications director, correct? That's right. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. And were you able to hear a little bit of Olivia's story? I did, and I want to give a special thanks to Olivia for sharing her story. Um, She is clearly a survivor and a victim advocate at heart, and the information she provided will help countless women. So thank you so much, Olivia. Oh, you are welcome, and thank you for being here with us. Absolutely. So I talked a little bit before the break because we want to add in the element of children because Olivia does not have any children. So if there is uh, someone who's stuck in a domestic violence situation right now that has kids, how do they get out of that? Well, it's very difficult whether there are kids or not, as you heard from Olivia. Um, But we know that every year in the United States, more than 15.5 million children witness domestic violence in their homes, one parent abusing the other. And it has devastating effects on the children. And, you know, it it could last into adulthood, the effects. They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They're, They're more likely to perform poorly in school or to misbehave. And they're more likely to emulate the behaviors they see. If you're a little boy and you see your father beating up your mother, you're going to think that's normal. And you may continue that behavior, that learned behavior, into adulthood. And if you're a little girl and you see your mother being abused on a regular basis, you may end up with an abuser and you might think that that's just normal. So it's just very, very 
discouraging and the problems can be long lasting. Okay, so we know the effects that can have on children. So if I'm the one being abused, and, and I know in you know three hours my abusers are going to be home and wanting dinner on the table, and this whole cycle is going to start all over again because he doesn't want carrots, he wants peas, and my kids are sitting there at the table. How do I protect them? What's my first step? Well, you know, most of the women out there care more about their children than they care about themselves. And so they will do whatever it takes to keep their children safe. I've even heard stories of um, survivors of abuse inciting the the abuse so that doesn't happen in front of the children, putting themselves as as the shield for the children, putting themselves up there as the shield for the children. It is just a terrible situation when that has to happen. And we would encourage anybody who's in a situation like that to work with a local victim advocate to safety plan. And there are so many out there. And if you're looking for just where do you start right now, here, get a piece of paper and you get a pen. I'm going to wait for a few seconds. All right. And then you're going to take this number down. 1-800-799-7233. And that is the National Domestic Violence Hotline, correct? That's right, and it's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they have the capability to connect you with local resources and help in every community across the country. And now, in the case of Olivia, it was slightly different because it was officer-involved domestic violence where calling the police you know, had no effect on helping her. But is the police the first place that a, you know, a domestic violence victim should go? Typically, yes. And we always say that, you know, if you're in immediate danger, to call 911. Um, If not, you know, call a hotline. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Call a local hotline you might know of. There are some statewide hotlines. There are some local hotlines. You know, call call a hotline to work with a victim advocate on what you need to do to plan for your safety. And victim advocates are going to listen to you and give you your options. They're not going to tell you to leave. They're not going to give you instructions on what you need to do. They're going to listen to you, understand your situation as best they can, and tell you what resources and options are available to you, and then you make the choice. Okay. And let's just break this down a little bit about what abuse is. And, Olivia, if, if you want to chime in, feel feel free to. Because a lot of times um, people who are victimized aren't even really sure they're being victimized, or they try and bargain their way or talk their way out of it. Oh, he just smacked me once or, oh, he just called me a beep, you know, whatever it is. And, and it only happened, well, you know, a couple of times last month. So do we have any sort of a definition for like emotional abuse or psychological abuse? Well, we always say that domestic abuse is best understood as a pattern of coercive controlling behavior. It is not a one-time um you yell at somebody, you call somebody a name one time, you know, it is a pattern of that power and control that Olivia talked about that we see as domestic violence. And that can come in several forms. It might be physical, sexual, emotional, psychological, financial, you know, when the abuser uses, puts you on an allowance or limits your access to capital or um, prevents you from working, sabotages your work efforts, runs up debt in your name. You know, there's a whole, the, you know, finances are an immense barrier to escaping abuse. And because oftentimes a woman will leave the relationship, go to get a loan to, to put a down payment on an apartment or a home, and find out that unbeknownst to her, the abuser ran up significant debt in her name and ruined her credit score. Wow. And that's just a very, financial abuse is just very insidious, and it's one of the least known forms of abuse, but it happens in 99% of relationships where there's other forms of abuse. There's some type of financial control. We actually have a partnership with the Allstate Foundation, and we've created a curriculum to help victim advocates take survivors step-by-step through everything from day-to-day budgeting to repairing a damaged credit score. Mm-hmm. And that is so true. Um, my abuser emptied out the joint bank accounts in violation of a court order, um, most likely due to his stature. Uh, he was not held in contempt of court. Now, if I were to have done that, I clearly would have been held in contempt of court. 
um, but clearly at that time had limited my access to funds. And that was in order to exert that kind of control. Mm. It's, to, it's to put you in the one-down position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She knows how angry this gets me because Olivia is a friend of mine. And right now, she can see how red my face is. And uh, I'm going to try and keep it cool because I am the host of the show here. <laughs> and I, I'm trying not to laugh because you, you, you mentioned the one down position. I think I'm about six or seven down on that <laughs> rung right now, Brian, with everything I've been through. <laughs> and you have been through so much. Uh, I mean, and, and it's just important for you know survivors who are listening to know that the abuse is not your fault. It's never your fault. You're not exactly. doing anything to cause it. The only person causing it is the abuser. And, you know, there are resources available. You know, we took a survey every year, a 24-hour survey of the services rendered in domestic violence programs across the United States. Ninety-one percent of them responded to our survey in 2010. And we found that in one 24-hour period, more than 70,000 victims were served during that one-day period alone. It's wow. phenomenal. And, and I think... And help me out here, Brian, because I know as I went through my advocacy training, and I don't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but when you look at like domestic violence shelters and the services that are available for women, I was floored and flabbergasted when I learned that there were like six times more animal shelters than there were domestic violence shelters. I've heard that, and I just think that speaks to the society's attitudes around intimate partner violence. Absolutely. You know, there are easier causes to adopt. You know, there, there, are, there are fluffier things to support, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And that just goes to show you that this issue is not a private family matter. It needs to come out of private homes and into the public square. We need to have more public conversations about it, like the ones we're having today, to get people talking about it and thinking about it and stop treating it like some taboo issue. This is an issue that affects everybody. It affects entire communities, and entire communities have to be motivated to get up and do something about it. Okay, you talked about speaking up and talking about it. So if someone right now is is in an issue like that and they have never told anyone that they're being abused, should they go to a friend first if they're not comfortable going directly to the police? I mean, how wide of a circle to do we start to bring that in? That's up to individual women. Um, you know, I leave that up to them. One of the you know m- most insidious parts about the domestic violence cases we see is that isolation. You know, one of the early signs, and this is something Olivia mentioned, is that abuser will try to isolate you from your friends and family. And it might even look romantic at first. They might say something like, "Oh, let's it just be you and me tonight. You don't have to go to your sister's house. I, I can't stand not to be with with you here." You know, things like that that almost sound ri- romantic. Well, those are some red flags. You know, it, that that looks like isolation. And if that happens excessively, then that might be an early warning sign. So a lot of times a victim's family and friends, that sort of that safety net of family and friends that most people have around them, slowly starts to erode because the abuser is increasingly isolating them. So very oftentimes... Sadly, the victim will become alienated from family and friends and might not have people to talk to. And that's a tactic that abusers use to maintain that power and control. Okay, and how do you speak to someone who may be listening? And maybe they're not in a domestic violence situation. They're going, I would leave. Boy, if he laid one hand on me, that'd be it. I'd be out the door. And that was me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now look. So what changes that? I mean, you're saying this, Olivia, that that you were that type of person, but you got sucked in. So, so Brian, what do you tell people who say that? I think the most important thing to do is to listen um, and to not be judgmental when you're listening. You know, don't say, what are you doing? You need to leave. Because those are the same types of things that the abuser is doing to the victim. So you need to be, you know, the, the, the abuser has sort of this this tactic that, you know, he's changing your reality and he's making you believe things that aren't true. You need to be that 
true voice. Be supportive. Say, you know, I'm really concerned about how he's treating you. I'm really concerned that it seems like I'm losing you. Um, we used to go out all the time. We're not going out anymore. Is there anything that I could do to help you? Uh, you know, please tell me about this. I'm concerned about this. There's a, there's a local hotline you can call. There's the national hotline you can call anonymously, confidentially, if you need to talk it through with somebody who knows more about what's going on than I do, um, and, and, and to listen to what you're going through and to make sure you know what resources are available to you. Because if you think about it, we, we all know that, that, that negativity and abuse, when constantly fed to someone, can completely break down the body and mind where it is not functioning in a manner that is best for you. It's kind of like if you continually, you know, eat food that's bad for you, your body's going to react in some way. And all of this negativity and abuse that's coming at you, that's being fed to you. Mm -hmm. And you're swallowing that every day. Right. It's like a brainwashing almost. You know, it's, it really is because that abuser wants you to feel like you're worth nothing to anybody, like no man will ever love you but him. You know, he's, he's constantly putting these messages into your head that you can't survive without him. If I can't have you, nobody will. Things like that. Those are all emotional or psychological ways to exert power and control over somebody. And they're very common in abusive relationships. And that's why it's important to talk to a friend. Talk to a victim advocate like Olivia who could you know, tell you that that's not true. You don't deserve the abuse. You're not doing anything to cause it. And nobody deserves to be abused. And there are some resources available to you. You. Every situation is different, so there will be different resources for different people, but there are resources available, everything from emergency shelter to children's supporter advocacy, legal accompaniment and advocacy, there's bilingual ag- ab- advocacy, job training and employment assistance, there's counseling, there's all sorts of different services that these programs provide. It's not just shelter, but there are other programs that are available too. Right. We're talking with Brian Namey from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, and their website is nnedv.org and that hotline number, again, 1-800-799-7233 and we'll have all that information up on our website, so if you're in a situation um, that you know, you're being abused, you can reach out to this. And I went on your website, and, and I loved it. There, there, You've got projects and public policy about how to get involved, resources, um, like you had said, counseling, employment, legal help, all this. And you had great videos um, from the Dr. Phil show. Yes. And it, it, he's very passionate about this. He is, and we've had, we just finished our first season working with him. Um, this is an issue that he's covered for some years now. He's talked about domestic violence um, for several years, and he approached us so that we can help to um, advise him on safety planning around shows so that we could be there on the shows to talk about the situation, to talk to victims, to make sure that the resources are in place when they go back home into their communities when he, when he speaks with survivors. And we really feel that he is an um, incredible champion for this work. Absolutely. So a wonderful website. If you want to know where do I start, you can start by going to nnedv.org. And one thing I, I want to just jump sure. in with that, there are so many resources for survivors, family members, friends, concerned ones um, on, on the web. But if you are a, a survivor of abuse and the abuser has access to your computer, he may have installed spyware or software on your computer to monitor your computer and online activities without you knowing it. So if the abuser has access to your computer, we recommend going to look at online resources at a public library or an Internet cafe so that the abuser does not see that you're learning about the issue and resources available online. If he sees that, that could escalate the violence and increase risk of homicide. Oh, that's, that is great advice. And, and they are extremely creative. I know that during our separation, uh, my ex was able to obtain HIPAA-protected information, and I, he sent it all printed out to me in his own handwriting, the medications I was on, new phone numbers, uh, and I actually made a complaint and followed through with Department of Health and Human Services, and they were they knew how he had done it, they just couldn't prove it. And for a survivor, I think it's important for them to remember that your intimate partner has your birth date, your social security number. And really all it took was for him probably to have a female call 
the local pharmacy, impersonate me, he's got all the information, and obtain all this information. Wow. <laughs> is that they, pretty common, Brian? It is It is not surprising, um, but terrible. You know, it, it's, it's not surprising to hear that. It's, you know, abusers use these kinds of tactics all the time to maintain power and control in their relationships. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, focus now on, on moving forward. What is an exit action plan and how do you start one? Well, Olivia talked a little bit about building a safety plan, and that's something that a local advocate can do with you. And that will include things like putting money away, collecting important documents, birth certificates, medical records, Social Security cards for you and your children if you have them, um, and and really developing a plan uh, that works for you. And it's going to be different for everybody, but it's important to gather that information ahead of time so that it's ready to go at a moment's notice, because only you know when it's when it's safe to when it's safest to leave as olivia mentioned um, the risk of extreme uh, violence is the worst at that immediate point of separation that's when things get really bad i mean we know that three women on average die every day in the u.s. at the hands of their current or former intimate partner I mean, that's just staggering and most of those homicides occur at the immediate point of separation so it's important to work with a local victim advocate who will listen to you and understand your situation as best they can, and then you know if you choose to leave when it would be safest to do so. Okay, and if you're sort of, you know, packing things up and, and ready for exit, you know, just little by little, what if your abuser notices this? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a very valid concern, absolutely. You need to be aware of that and plan for that. So just only pack, like, small little areas so it doesn't look like you're taking down the whole house? That's right. That's right. You have to be very, um, you know, very strategic about it. And working with a local advocate, they'll, they'll give you tips on how to do that. Brian, one question for you. Uh, and I know my case is a little bit different, again, because my abuser was an officer. What would you recommend someone who is in that position where their abuser is an officer, where, you know, they know all the tactics, the right. the court systems are stacked against them. I mean, like I said, the, the night of my incident, I was turned away from a local right. shelter. So where would someone, and I know that the domestic violence statistics and law enforcement families are staggeringly high compared to the general population. Where do we go? What do we do? Or what can I do to help the next intimate partner of a police officer? I mean, what... The, the barriers and obstacles ha, have been overwhelming. And even my own attorney, I mean, at one point at the last court hearing, was almost in tears walking out because, in our case, the judge kept telling him to shut up and wouldn't even let him talk. Yeah, and that's a, and we hear that quite often, as you could imagine. I mean, unfortunately, police departments across the country don't have a uniform protocol for this kind of thing, um, and they don't get enough training in the academy to even respond effectively to calls. Uh, they're learning it on the job, uh, sort of thing. And those calls, domestic violence calls, are some of the scariest for law enforcement officials because they never know what's behind that door. Right. Is there a firearm? What what is it? That they just never know. So there needs to be. You know, more training around this kind of thing. There need to be protocols in place to deal with it when it when there when it is police involved domestic violence because it just doesn't exist across the board. It does in some jurisdictions, but it needs to happen more uniformly. And there are some you know organizations working on that with the um, the courts, law, national law enforcement organizations are, are have have projects like that. There's some training that goes on. Um, one is based from the uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, they go around and they train police officers on um, protocols for departments and responding to domestic violence calls. But if you're in a situation like that and your abuser is a law enforcement official, you know I would if you're in immediate danger. I would call 911. I would get to safety however you can, and I would work, work with a local victim advocate. I'm so sorry that the shelter turned you away. They probably should not have done that. Um, but working with you to um, find out what resources are available to you, uh, whether it's a maybe it's a hotel voucher, a counseling group, legal accompaniment or support, um, but to give you all the resources that you need. Right, because I went through it blindly. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, and most, well, most women do, really. I mean, most women don't really know how to navigate any of this. 
No, and I, again, being one that would never have suspected I, I would be in this position, and I, I know I'm you know not necessarily the sharpest hack in the drawer, but I, I do have some brain power to me, and it, and it totally boggled me. Well, and it and it, it does, and your and your case just proves that anybody it could happen to anyone. I mean, you have an advanced degree, a successful professional career. It could happen to anyone. It's not just you know, it's not just poor people. It's not right. just minority people. It's it could happen to anybody. And as you're going through this, and I know this has actually been somewhat of a struggle for you, Olivia. Speak a little bit about your uh your connection to something greater than yourself your spiritual connection during this because your spirit gets crushed going through this it was crushed um shattered it's been rebuilding a life um when i hear other survivors talk i hear words like ashamed and embarrassed um i've reframed it at least for myself at this point as being a gift um, one, I still have the gift of life. Um, when you look at, you know, what we call divorce casualties or relationship casualties, it's like, okay, so that friend went with him and I kept this friend. You know, at the time, it, it really hurts in that you get that abandonment from those people. And I think back now, I'm like, you know, thank God you're not in my life. I mean, I'm literally starting from scratch and I, and I'm, it's very hard sometimes to trust that faith. Mm-hmm. I still have it. And I think it's stronger, but there's still times I look up to the sky and say, really? (laughs) Can you send the next message down nicely written on a white feather, please, instead of (laughs) what it's been? Um, So, Brian, as far as rebuilding a woman's spirit back up, that has to do with empowerment, right? When they take that first step away from their abuser, that's when the empowerment comes. Absolutely, and it's a long road ahead. It is not an easy journey. Um, there are many challenges. There are many pitfalls. There are many barriers that women will face after they've made the decision to leave. Um, I mean, the, the court system is not easy to navigate. It's not easy to start a new life. It's just not easy. And, you know, many people do rely on faith for that source of inner strength and other other sources of inner strength that people rely on. Uh, and it's important to, you know, know that you can make it. Know that it might be difficult, but you will survive. That's the most important thing. Absolutely. And had it not been for my friends, and I, I don't know where this quote came from, but um, it was once that I think that friends were God's way of apologizing to us for our families. And I, <laughs> I can't help but hold true to that because if it weren't for the love and endurance of my friendships, I would not be here right now. So they have been vital. you are not powerless. There is a way out. And I want to thank Olivia so much for being here to tell her story. And thank you, Brian, from the National Network to End Domestic Violence. All the contact information will be up on our website. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks, listeners, for choosing to be positive now.